Mickey scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Lexington, Kentucky, here's Bruno DiGiulio. And welcome to this week's edition of the Racing with Bruno podcast. And we've got Pete Renato, uh, one of our in-house handicappers and and tournament players. And uh, the last we spoke with you, Pete, first of all, thanks for coming on board. And thanks for second having of me. All, and the second thing is, the last we spoke, we were heading into Saratoga. So I was going to talk to you a little bit about your thoughts about Saratoga, go over some some facts from that and look to and then look to the future. Uh, how was your Saratoga meet? The meet was up and down. To be honest with you, I probably allocated about 80% of the bankroll to Del Mar. I felt like I had a better feel for how Del Mar was playing during the meet. Also, through some of our Zoom meetings together, we noticed some things related to the tides and how that affected the track. And I felt like I had a little bit more of an edge at Del Mar. That being said, um, I was lucky enough to catch a $54,000 pick six uh, in a partnership with a buddy of mine. We were also alive to the pool for 900000 which would have been exhilarating. Wow. But just being alive to that was a pretty cool feeling. Besides that, I didn't, I didn't have any major standout hits at Saratoga, some spot plays that came through now and again. Um, but uh, to me, Saratoga has always been a meet that I treat as a fan just watching all those great horses. But a lot of times, especially on the big days, the races tend to chalk out a bit. And I'm, I'm always bomb hunting. And so it's not always the best track for me personally. But it was great to see what Luis Saez did up there and some incredible performances from some of the top horses in America. So it, it was definitely fun to watch as a fan of the game. Let's talk about that. First of all, Luis Saez started hot and just kept going. Usually what you'll find with a lot of these meets like Saratoga, somebody starts up hot and then they cool off. Well, Louis, Louis ends up having winning at 19%. He was 23% on the main track and 14% on the turf course. He won at an average level with favorites at 35%. Um, the second leading rider was Irad Ortiz Jr. And he was at about 17%. He had a better in the money percentage than Louis. Louis had a 44%. Uh, percent. Irad had 55%. Um, he also won 30%, uh, excuse me, 20% of his races on the turf and 15% on the dirt. He also won with 35% favorites. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of surprises on the top four with Saez, Ortiz, Jose Ortiz, and Joel Rosario. Were you surprised that Ricardo Santana was fifth with, uh, uh, with 35 wins and a percentage of 17% win percentage for the meet? Well, I think normally it would be surprising, but there were so many live ass musins that Santana got mounts on. But going back to the Saez issue, what was fascinating to me was, especially early in the meet, before he got super hot, how well he did with horses that weren't on paper the 
best two, three or four or best horse in the race. I mean, he, he was really moving horses up even for some low profile trainers. It was just a phenomenal meet for him. The guy was just riding unconscious. And as the meet went on, he got more and more live mounts and kept the momentum going. But it's incredible. If you really look on paper, what Irad rode every race, especially early on versus what Saez rode, it's definitely a surprise that Saez would have the meet that he had. What's interesting is Saez had 14 more mounts than Irad. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting, yeah. Um, Top three percentage winners on the main were Luis Saez, Joel Rosario, and Ricardo Santana. I thought that was very interesting. On the turf, only Irad Ortiz had a 20% win percentage. The closest ones were... Uh, Jose Lascano at 15, Joel Rosario at 16, and then Saez and Jose Ortiz at 14. Also, as favorites, Ricardo Santana rode 46% 46 with with favorites, um, which was pretty staggering. Uh, I had of Irad, Jose, and, and Louis. 42% 42% for Rosario. You know who stole the meat with the favorites? was Tyler Gaffleone at 56%. Yeah, that's incredible. That's pretty crazy. I wonder how uh, many were uh, maker turf horses that he won with. But, yeah, he, he, he's, he had a great meet as well. By the way, Dylan Davis, who gets limited mounts, won with 6 out of 80. Uh, and, uh, and it, uh, excuse me, not 6 out 5 out of 8. Favorites for sixty-three percent. Really interesting. That's amazing. See, what I learned years ago was at Saratoga, and I went to a thoroughbred owners and breeders association seminar, and Kieran McLaughlin was speaking. And back then, I, I I knew a lot less about the game than I do now. And I remember someone asked Kieran a question about his success as a trainer because at the time he was doing very well, and his answer was quite humble. He felt that he was no different than the best 25 or 30 trainers on the circuit. But when he got Chadwell stables as a client, it increased his winning percentage because he was working with better stock. I think a lot of that is, is true with jockeys as well. And Dylan Davis is an example, you know, a guy's not getting the mounts that Irad and Jose and Rosario were getting, but if you're watching the game close enough, you can see the skill level is there and presumably over time, He'll get the improved mounts as well. But Dylan Davis rode great. He, and he had some, some really good price horses and horses that, you know, unfortunately, personally, knocked me out of some sequences. Speaking of being knocked out of some sequences, two-year-old racing was really, I thought, really good at Saratoga. Um, but it was dominated by trainers. However, when you look at the jockeys and how they did with two-year-olds, you would think Luis Saez would be the top percentage rider, correct? You would think. He was only, yeah, you would think, but he was only third best. He was third best behind, believe it or not, Jose Ortiz won with 26% of his two-year-olds. And Tyler Gaffleone won with 22%. And Saez was third with 19 Irad only had 13%. And Joel Rosario only rode 
at 8% against two-year-olds. I thought that was a staggering uh, uh, piece of information. I wonder how um, much of that you can attribute to the fact that Jose is a, a rider that gets a horse aggressively on the lead. And there were a so lot of there were, so there were yeah, I agree. There was a there was a lot of days with, with Merry Go Round racetrack over there this summer, more so yeah, than I was. than usual. And that made a big difference. And now I, I, I own a share of uh, a two year old Colt called from another mother who ran very well against that Pletcher monster who ran like a ninety or ninety one, ninety two buyer. And we were on the lead and, and we went through sizzling fractions, turned back our dueler and then got passed later. But, you know, it's, it's almost like as an owner jockey, better uh, trainer, if you were to catch the right day with the right track, the best horse wasn't always winning because they got that rail speed and it just carried. And there was one day in particular where I think it was like a 30 to one shot, one wire to wire. It just had no chance under any other circumstance, but got carried by the track and, you know, that, that's always been frustrating for me. Was where that the uh, AC Avila horse? It, it might have been. I think there might have been another one as well. Yeah, the Avila for sure, um, which uh, really on paper was a definite difficult use if it wasn't for the, the way the track was playing. Um, but, I, you know, and I don't know much about dirt and water and everything, but that's one thing as a regular player, I wonder why it's so difficult to keep things somewhat fair. And and that was that was one thing that, that definitely was frustrating at the meets this summer. Well, a lot of people want to scream biases. I believe tracks have profiles, but the one thing I always come back to: horses are built for speed. When we buy horses, we're buying for speed, but then we're surprised when speed dominates. Well. That's what we're buying horses for, for them to be fast. So maybe the way our pedigree and our our breeding has been geared to milers and speed, that's what's supposed to be winning, right or wrong. No, I agree. I think, you know, Overall, the first angle that's always prevalent for me when I'm looking at Saratoga is class. I mean, class just wins out there so many times, especially at the top levels, despite the way the track's playing or despite, you know, bad trips. The great horses just find ways to win. Uh, But at the same time, you know, you do have horses that are fast that stay longer because of that class level. And And most of the time it is it is speed horses. But. When you're talking about, you know, 20,000, 40,000 claimers or even lower level claimers or maiden claimers and, uh, you know, a horse is not even there may be two, three, four speeds in the race and they not may not even be the dominant speed, but they just happen to get the rail and they stay. And I think I think those those races are, are tough as a handicapper because at some point you, you have ticket construction and you have a budget. And when you look at the third speed or the fourth speed in a race and you have to use that horse because maybe they break better, it's tough. It's tough to, to A, hit tickets. It's tough to hit tickets for a reasonable budget. Um, so as someone that, you know, feels that 
the race dynamics should help the handicapper who's analyzing the race in a proper way. It gets a little frustrating when the, the cheaper, less classier horses are benefiting greatly from that condition. Well, I, you have to add also the human error part. Um, you come across in New York a lot that there's a lot of geniuses out there trying to decide on on how to, their horse should be ridden. Yep. And, you know, you'll get a race where you got three speed horses and none of them materialize and one gets away with an easy pace. That's almost every day in New York. Where in California, you know, you got a lot of guys that are much more aggressive and they'll put the horses in the race. I want to, we're talking about trainers. Uh, Percentage wise, I found some interesting statistics. Brad Cox, he won uh, 27% of his races. He had 48 starts, 13 wins, 8 seconds. What I thought was interesting, he won 32% on the turf course. I mean, excuse me, on the, on the main, on main track. He won 32% of his races on the main track. He only won 2 out of 14 on, on the turf for 14%. Yet, if I remember correctly, he had quite a few favorites that were on the turf that didn't run. And his statistics as favorites, he had 10 wins from 20 starts. He won 50% with favorites. So uh, Brad Cox definitely on the, on the dirt is very, very strong, was, was a very strong play. Now let me move down to Danny Gargan. Uh, Danny Gargan won 26% of his races in 35 starts at the meet. He won with 718 on the dirt, which is 39%, but only 2 of 17 on the turf for 12%. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that'll uh, flip when av- Gulfstream starts. Yeah, exactly. He's much more of a turf guy at, at, at Gulfstream. Uh, Rudy Rodriguez had a decent meet. He won 11 out of 82 uh, races altogether. He was 11 out of 55 on the main track for 20%. He was 0 for 27 on the turf. And he was 1 for 9 with favorites. That's a pretty strong stat, 0 for 27 on the turf yeah. for Rudy Rod. I'd be very curious to look, whether it's Gargan, Rudy, or Brad Cox, and see what kind of draws they were getting. Because on the inner, uh, especially at a mile, you had no shot of winning outside the six or seven post. Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes the post position makes a huge difference there. And so I don't know if it just they weren't doing well on the surface in general or they were getting bad draws. I'd have to look well, at it. Well, when you're over 27, when you're over 27, you're not getting bad draws. Uh, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Um, Bill Mott. Uh, Bill Mott won uh, 15% at the typical Bill Mott meet, 15 wins out of 103. He had 13 wins on the main track where he hit at 24%. He was only two for 48 on the turf course. Wow. That's amazing. 48. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Um, Steve Asmussen was 27% on the main track, 19 for 70, 0 for 13 on the turf. Yeah, to me, that's a stat that's a little bit more in line. line, Yeah, yeah, because he does have so many great third horses up there. Mike Maker only won two races for the last three weeks of the meet. Only two. And he was 14% on the main track. He was 10 for 69. He was 21% on the turf, 15 for 71. And he was 54% with favorites, 7 out of 13. 
Um, Makers Barn just did not have the numbers that a Todd Pletcher or Chad Brown has. Yet he started 140, which is 36 less than Chad Brown and six less than Pletcher. Todd Pletcher, he wanted 21% for the meet, 27% on the main track, and 13% on the turf. He was average at 36% with favorites. I really thought the money on the board for Todd was quite different than I have ever seen it before. What did you find in general? Uh, I felt the way the maiden races were bet that people didn't know anything. Yeah, I think so. And so, listen, sometimes and you, you know, you're in the mornings watching the training. Sometimes there's three, four, five horses that are really training great. You have a lot of future stars in those two-year-old maiden races. And, you know, sometimes it's just how they break. Uh, sometimes a horse wants more ground. And they may look good in the morning. But it, you know, sometimes you have two or three pletchers against each other in a race. And it's like splitting hairs on, on who to select. So uh, I think that's understandable. You know, but I, I, when, don't think we, I don't think we missed much on the pletchers. I just felt like there was no player's confidence in him i mean you had maids going off at three to one yep. that otherwise like in florida they'd go off at six to five so i thought that was interesting Agreed. chad brown chad brown 21 percent on the main track 15 for 70 and most of that was at the latter part of the meet he was 25 percent on the turf 42 percent with favorites now let's break it down with chad brown with his two-year-olds he was 19 out of 32. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. 19%. I'm with 20% uh, out, of 30, out of 32 starts. Todd Pletcher was almost 30%. He was 29% with his two-year-olds. The next closest guy was Christophe Clement. With 21 two-year-old starts, he won 33% of his races. Brad Cox won with 24%. Rob Atris only had four. He won at 25%, but he was one out of four. Uh, Wesley Ward was two out of 21 for 10% with his two-year-olds. That's interesting. Now, also, Wesley Ward was 17% sprinting and 17% routing. Um those were interesting stats. Just looking down at the list, Bill Mott was three for 29 with two-year-olds. Right. And it, Mott's historically a bad oh, no, first well, time. Let me, let, no, no, let me, let me rephrase that. Sorry. Because I keep looking at this and I get it wrong. He was 3%. 3% out of 29 starts. I think that means he won one or two. Yes, yeah, so it would be probably the same horse that won the um, what's the Saratoga Special. Yeah, right. But otherwise, he was an over with two-year-olds at the meet. Um, a lot of interesting statistics. Mark Cassie was twenty-one percent when nineteen starts. Kelly Breen did well. Joe Sharp did well. Um, I still go back to the Wesley Ward at ten percent. A two-year-old. And they just kept throwing it in on him. You know? Um, 
Very, those, are, those are interesting stats for the meet. Agreed. I didn't feel like Ward was as loaded this year as he normally is. You know, and he's always a little bit better at Keeneland. But um, you're right. I, he, he was definitely not at his normal level of success at this I meet. I don't know if he had that normal success at Saratoga. I, I, he doesn't fire like he does at Keeneland. He doesn't fire like he does maybe at Churchill or Gulfstream. Right, but if you look, if you think about the PPs, when he's running at Keeneland in April, you know it, you, they're not filled with Asmussen right, and Pletcher right. and Brown. It's it's yeah, Hancock right, right. and all these other Kentucky trainers right. who don't have the super high class horses. I think that makes a difference. I think I think Wesley is much more comfortable training out of Keeneland and shipping out. Yeah. Than he is having horses at Saratoga, at you know New York and Belmont. I always discount, downgrade his horses that are stable at the track like Belmont or Saratoga, and it's proven to be very successful for him. Yeah, I was alive to Ward uh, for the pick six on closing day, singled into the last leg, and the maiden claiming 40 New York bread, and I did think he was trying to steal one there, um, and just the the horses went too fast on the yielding turf, and, and threw in a towel um but uh yeah it was a listen there's too many great levels of talent jockey wise trainer wise there's plenty of good ones that are not going to have good meets just the nature of saratoga yeah. moving over to del mar flavian pride i think dominated um he definitely dominated the jockey standing i always paid attention to where he was on especially on the turf he seemed to pop up on horses that you said, why is Pratt here? And all of a sudden, the horse would run a big race. An interesting uh, second uh, runner-up to the, to the jockey title was Juan Hernandez. Um, he did very, very well uh, throughout the meet. Um, Abel Cedillo was third. Then you had Rispoli and Joey Bravo in the top five. I'll tell you, of all those riders... Who would I want? Umberto Rispoli. Besides being the fact that he's from my own town in, in, in Napoli, I've seen him put some unbelievable rides on the turf. He is a phenomenal turf rider. Um, so, and he didn't get the greatest of luck, but he, was, he had 44 seconds um, uh, from 186. Uh, uh, mounts and 27 win. If he turns around and just has 10 extra wins, he is really up there second by clear lane. So, Rispoli maybe might have had an unlucky meet. He had a key disqualification in a race as well. You know, it's it's crazy to think that he actually fell off from Santa Anita where he absolutely dominated, but he, he there was some great rides. But also, you know, there was uh, post position was a big, big factor there as well. Eh? The, the, uh, on the turf sprints, the one and two posts were winning over 50% of the races. So even with a risk bully and even with a good horse, you know, inside dominated on certain days there. And you, when sometimes you're up against, it doesn't matter how good of a jockey you are, you know, it's just, just the way it plays. Um, but yeah, he's tremendous talent and, and you can't forget Franco there who was just coming with incredible prices in terms of a guy that does not get the greatest mounts that moves horses up. I was very impressed with the way he wrote it at Del Mar. 
he had a strong win percentage over the place percentage of his mounts. Yeah. The old guard and the new guard. The old guard. I love following first-time Kent the Sormo on a horse. Love that angle. And he was in the, it was sixth in the standing. That's a resurgence for Kent. Huge, and yes. Yeah, he has not forgotten how to ride. I can tell you that. The new guard. How about this young guy, Kyle Frey? He was winning most of the meet with a percentage of over 20% on the turf. Outstanding. Uh, yep. Yeah, Kyle Frey was interesting at 10%. Winning 14 out of 145. You mentioned Giovanni Franco. Um, I'll tell you the one disappointing guy was Mauro Guterres. I thought he put in some really odd rides. Agreed. Uh, um, I, I don't know what was going on from there. And Tyler Bays. Tyler Bays, in, the, in my days when I was in California, was a top five rider. He was a good speed rider. He could send... He had a five percent at the meet. He he was just I I don't know what's going on with Tyler. I don't know. And Mike's, if I remember correctly, to interrupt you. I, I I think Mullins even used someone other than Tyler as the meet went on. I, th I think yes. he made some changes because you know there was a lot of live Mullins horses in that meet, and and I recall seeing Tyler off a few times. Uh, Mike Smith only had thirty six mounts the whole meet. He won five of them. Uh, it was 50% on the money. I thought that was interesting. Guys coming in, Velasquez, uh, Giroux, Rosario did well. Um, between them, they had uh, 33 mounts and eight wins. So that was pretty impressive. Um, otherwise, guys like Alexis Centeno didn't win a race. Diego Herrera didn't win a race. Juan Espinosa didn't win a race. Cesar Ortego didn't win a race. And those guys rode over 145 horses combined. Um, thought that was actually really interesting to talk about as well. As far as trainers, um, what a meet for Peter Miller. He was 50% in the money. And he had 26 wins and 23 thirds, the seconds. Uh, Bob Baffert uh, won at 31% and was 63% in the money. Uh, John Sadler had his usual hard-knocking, good meet. So did Baltus. Doug O'Neill won all his races the last two weeks, basically. He got really hot towards the, end, the latter part of the meet. And I always found trainers, they start off slow, pick it up late. And you wait for that little spark that you see. And then all of a sudden, it seems like all the horses are firing. But uh, Doug O'Neill was definitely not prepared for the early part of the meet. Um, Mark Glatt was another guy that I was impressed with. He's got some nice few juveniles. Uh, you, you found one of his that won first out very easily uh, that I think ran second in the futurity the other day. Yes, yes. But, but what's more impressive to me was some of the Little Red Feather Glatt horses that he moved up. You know, from claiming horses to stakes horses or claiming horses to allowance horses, he was doing an outstanding at improving horses. Uh, I think How Be It was one of them. And Glatt, I think the sky's the limit. He's starting to get better and better quality horses, and he's going to become an elite trainer if he's not there already. Been around a long time. Yeah. You know, um, 
As far as owners are concerned, Rona's racing, you know, at eight wins from 37 starts, 22%. They've always had good horses with Sadler, and uh, I think they're always uh, worth a, a, a long look. Nick Alexander uh, won with seven of 25 with 28%. The new one was don't, Downstream Racing with Peter Miller, and they won at a 38% clip, six for 16. Gary Barber was his usual um, – stalwart in the, in the owner uh, standings. And these guys go way back to Daryl Vienna when I was out in California with Red Barron's Barn and uh, Rancho Temescal. Uh, they were unlucky with 10 seconds, but they had five wins. Uh, they could have easily had, uh, if a couple of races go their way, they could have easily been right there with Ronas for top owner. They're always ones to watch with horses coming from out of town and first-time starters. Uh, Redham Racing is always right there. They had a lot of starters, but as Doug O'Neill goes, so does Redham Racing. I made a comment on the final weekend on an Eddie Freeman horse that ha- was uh, was owned by Redham, and you always got to look at him because he'll fire for, for, for Mr. Redham at a big price uh, at a high percentage. Now, the big-time spenders, the Starlight Racing and Mattacat and um, Stone Street and F- SF Racing, they won five out of 11 races, but also those five out of 11 races, a lot of those horses are just just horses that are million dollar horses, 700,000. So they're buying the cream of the crop, but only getting 11 to start at a meet like Del Mar. Is that something that I shouldn't be so critical about? Yeah, you know, I just I find with these these meets are just there's it's like Doug O'Neill or anyone else. It's hard to knock guys that you know know what they're doing that have track record of success when they're put in these meets that are just ultra competitive with the best horses, the best trainers, the best riders, and everyone's so well intentioned. And you know, you got guys that will will start a horse that needs a race, but in these these meets, everyone's gunning for checks and. So, you know, I, I don't read too much into some of these things. I know going back to the Redham, you know, Redham didn't do so well with O'Neill this meet. But, you know, there was a there was a Ed Freeman train horse called Miss Carousel, who was, I think, 78 to one. Um, it was a Redham Freeman Franco and then rolls back in like two weeks off this 78 to one win. And what, what was Freeman like 35, 40 percent of the meet, something insane. And so I, I, I have a Andrew Lerner training two horses for me out there. And I called Andrew and I go, this horse, Miss Carousel, just won for optional claiming 20 to trying to come back for 20 again. And, and she's in for the tag. This We should buy her. And we couldn't get everything together in time. And she won again easily. Um, so, you know, who knows? It's I, I just think it's the nature of the, the competition in the, at these meets. And, you know, we know Doug O'Neill can train and, He's got the historical track record with Derby winners and the like. And so, you know, you chalk it up to what it is and move on. Well, um, what was interesting, he won with another one. Um, he won with another one at the meet. Um, it was right at the end. I think I told you so, or I said so, something like that. Yep. Horse's name paid, I think, six to one. Um, let's talk about. Um, I've had quite a few people write me about Kentucky Downs. And it is one of the hardest tracks to handicap. 
I may under handicap at Churchill at uh, Kentucky Downs. I just want to find the horses that fit at that level and the right connection. What about do you play Kentucky Downs? And if you do, do you have any specific or different kind of way of handicapping? All I remember with Kentucky Downs meet to meet is when these horses make these big sweeping moves and they look like they're going to run away and then they stop mid stretch. Right. And, and I, I, I lose a lot that way over there. It, it's a fun meet to watch. The purses are amazing. Uh, the quality of the horses is great. Um, I'm more likely to play on a day like today, a Wednesday where nothing else is really going as opposed to like this past Sunday or Monday when there's big tracks going and not because it's not a phenomenal meet, but I, I struggle with it and I like to play pick fives. And if, if I can't put together a pick five ticket, that's no more than two, $250 and have a chance and I'm not going to play it. So when I do play there, uh, it's, it's really connections that there's, there's been some riders been doing well there this week. Uh, but I'm, I'm more of a spot player there when placed better or exact better. And I'll, I'll usually stay out of the multi-race pools. Well, for example, um, like I really liked the number four Kentucky ghost in the eighth race on Wednesday, um, went off at about eight, it was eight to one on the morning line, ran second to in love, uh, who paid 1940. Uh, I think I had in love second or third. The thing that threw me off is I didn't, I, I was holding it against in love that Alex Achard was riding because of that difference in that course. And I think that 1940 was product of people liking um, in love. Uh, see, Kentucky Ghost went off his favorite at two to one. The second favorite was 40 under. He finished dead last. Um, and they forgot about in love uh, and went off at eight to one. And I, but I really believe that was the only, the only reason it was eight to one. It was because of Alex Achard. And um, I'm kind of going just through the results for this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, just to get an idea. Um, also, here's another thing I found. I found that inside posts are the ones you want to play. The five, the six, to, one through six. It seems like they really do dominate. Here you had full fields in the seventh and eighth. You had 10 horses in the seventh. And the two, three, four, five finished in the fifth, uh, finished in the top five. It was five, four, two, three. If you go to the eighth race, which was a another ten horse field, and you look at the finish, it was five, four, two, one. That's the inside five. Let's just go down to the sixth race. Uh, in the sixth race, you had a field of uh, eight of seven, and so in other words, if the eight the eight won it at. Um, the eight won it with E.T. Baird for Steve Manley and paid in 1040. Uh, but the eight would have been in the six hole because of the two scratches with the one and four finish second and third. Um, you go down to the fifth race, and I'm just going to do it systematically here. In the sixth race, it was four, six, one, two. The four newsworthy won at 3560. The six horse, Mr. Tip, came second at $10. I think that might, uh, uh, no, that was not our pick. But um, if you go to the fourth race, uh, the fourth race was a was a mile and 70 yards, and the two outside posts ran one, two. Okay. You know, 
it is what it is. You know, you're not going to have that rule work all the time. Um, and in the third race, you had the eight, four, 11, ran one, two, three. So now we just have the official on the Wednesday ninth race with Snapper Sinclair, who is a uh, specialist over the track, just one at two to one. Um, but it's just very interesting to me sometimes if just on the post position alone, one through six is very crucial on that track. Yeah, that's a good angle that you caught in, in a very brief period, and and it's something that you could try to take advantage of. I don't. The meet's not very long, if I recall. It's only a few more days. Uh, three more days. I think. Three more days. Yeah. So definitely something worth looking at. Um, I can tell you there was a horse in race one uh, that I was interested in claiming a while back when you first introduced me to Norm Cassie called Uncapped, who was just he kind of picked up checks. He was slicey, never really won, and. Um, Maybe he benefited from that today. He won race one, paid nineteen dollars. Uh, but uh, like I said, I I don't have a great feel for that place, and some people do. I saw I saw some guys post some monster tickets that they hit on on Twitter the last few days. But um, I, I'm fa- fairly disciplined at sticking to tracks where I feel I have a little bit of an edge, and it doesn't always work the way I expect it. But it, more times than not, it will. If it worked as it, we expected, we'd get bored very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and yeah. I'll give you an anecdote. I, I was playing in the end, my first ever NHC last week, and I, I ran mid-pack. And I genuinely feel I have a better eye for California, which includes Golden Gate and Del Mar, or Golden Gate and Santa Anita, than the East Coast. And I sat there with my friends on day two of the NHC, and I think I made win bets on between five and seven horses, seven to one to 11 to one between Woodbine, Saratoga and Gulfstream that all win. And I used none of those horses in the tournament because I, I was convinced that I would be better at Del Mar. And then I went over Del Mar. <laughs> so, so it doesn't always go as planned. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, I've had days where I love the card and, that's why I don't answer people, and I don't want to say, "Oh, do you have a best bet?" Because I could pick, I could do eleven races, and we do the same thing for all eleven races. I don't vary, so I could give you four horses, none of, none of them win, but I sweep the other seven. Right. I've had that happen before, and people say, "Well, you didn't give me those other horses," so I stopped doing it, you know. Um, and 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 that's and that's the part of the game that a lot of people don't understand. Um, sometimes you get fixated on a horse and you'll miss three other ones that you may like. You're absolutely speaking right. Of, speaking about synthetics, let's talk about Gulfstream adding this Tapita course. Have you put any thought into that? Yeah, it's going to make it more chaotic. Um, but, you know, I, I, I remember when Hollywood Park went to synthetic oh. and, and, and even Delmar at the beginning when you were getting crazy results. But if you look at the races closely and really take the time and absorb, if you remember Delmar, like all these unusual heats were winning at the beginning when they installed their synthetic. And if you were watching it closely day in, day out, you got that immediate edge and eventually the edge went away. And the candy, and the candy rides. 
right the, the candy, candy rides, rides right so you know yeah. it's the same thing now with all the rain that they get in in florida combined with that who knows how that's going to play but i think if you can be very attentive early on at least for a week or two it could create a, an advantage for you well here's the interesting part you brought up california when they moved over to synthetic at hollywood park Within the first week, you knew it was going to be a nightmare because the track was already messed up within a week. There was ridges in it. They had to cancel one day of racing. The problem with California is they wanted to mess with that track too much. And what ended up happening, happening, it ended up being a hybrid. You know, I think the track superintendent said it best to me. He said, if they tried to duplicate this this synthetic at Hollywood Park, they couldn't do it in 100 years because of the way that they had to manipulate it to get it to be at least somewhat consistent. Now we went down to Del Mar six months later, seven months later. And I remember Del Mar, before the meet opened up, had a day where all fans could come in and walk on the track. And at that time, that track was pristine. You, you, you stepped on it, and it was like a mattress. And it would, you would step off, and you can see your foot and the actual imprint of your foot go back, just like you would on a mattress. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see it anymore. It would just dissipate. And I remember a friend of mine, Ted, sat in the middle of the track and yelled at me, Bruno, they're running on trash. And... He was right. Um, it was made with used tire uh, shavings. Uh, there was these jelly cables or something in it to keep it together. Um, but he was right. He was right. They were running on trash, and it was trash. Because, you, you know, first of all, the guy that put it in decided that you shouldn't bank the track or the turns. And I remember Bruce Headley telling the, the Delmar that if you don't put any kind of grading or, or banking on that first turn, you're going to be catching horses. You better put a net on the outside fence because you're going to be catching horses into it. And also, they put a little bit of a bank on the far turn. But because that's synthetic, the, if, the, if you try to make a move wide on a track that's not really banked, you're going to end up spending your wheels two to one to horses down on the inside. It was unfair for horses on the outside because horses don't have differentials like cars do. And when they explode into a turn, that centrifugal force kicks them out, pushes them out. So there's a battle between the horse to be able to stay in and keep it and make it through the turn. The greatest example, have you ever gotten off the freeway on a really tight loop? Yep. Where is that centrifugal force pulling your body? Inside. To the left. Yep. To the left. So same thing for horses. When they're going through the turn, it's pulling you to the right. So that takes a lot of effort to stay in, and you would get a lot of horses making that wide move, they flatten out. Well... Also, you had in the morning, you had horses working out of the gate and they had to work through the first turn to go up five eighths. And that would really pull on them that you had horses coming up with 
uh, tibias being broken. You had knee chips. You got ankle chips. And that was because the centrifugal, centrifugal force pulling the horse one way while the horse is trying to stay the other way. Think about it. It's like it, it rips apart, you know, especially hind ends. So it, that whole thing in California was so messed up because they did not have the right information. They did not have the right specifications. They did not have the right banking for it. And that created a problem. So for me to get excited about Gulfstream, it's going to be where you have to watch. And first of all, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm not looking at outside posts. I'm going to be looking at inside speed, inside trips, because that's what I think that turf course is going to play, especially with the tight turns, because it's part of the turf course, the old turf course. So there's a lot of little things that you have to figure out about that track. And it's going to be a very interesting track. Now, Woodbine, I love inside trips at Woodbine. When I see a horse make a move five, mile, five wide and keep going on the synthetic, then I know that horse is a good horse. So little things like that that you have to pay attention uh, that are very interesting on, uh, uh, on synthetics that a lot of people don't really put a whole lot of thought into. Agreed. Also, don't forget, at the time in California where all three tracks had synthetic, they all had three different synthetic surfaces, which oh. made it more of a challenge as betters. And they had scraped the Santa Anita track down at a time when I think what a horse ran like a 106, six furlongs, you know, got a little insane there for a while. Um, yeah. But again, you got to be perceptive and try to catch things early uh, and and try to adjust and, and make some scores before everyone else figures things out. There's you know, a, a sharp player that's perceptive, it puts the work in and thinks will have a window of opportunity. And how long that window is open, we don't know. But there's definitely going to be open long enough to to make some good hits if you can figure it out in the first week. Now, Belmont won't be starting until a week from next Friday, from this Friday. What's interesting about that is the time lapse. And when I've seen that in California in the past, it's been really helpful with fields. The first week you got very competitive races. But when we're going to look at Belmont, we kind of uh, have to refer back to our discussion earlier about Saratoga. Because a lot of people are going to look at speed horses. And I don't know if that's going to be the same at Belmont. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, it, it, I, I, it's not as prevalent as Saratoga, uh, but, you know, Belmont has a lot of bias days as well and where you can only win on the lead. It's some of its weather, um, you know, the rain comes and goes. We had some heavy rains and it got very dry for a while. Um, you know, at some point I like to learn more about the mechanics of track maintenance because as a layman, I just feel like, you know, it's dirt. Dirt's been around for millions of years. You should be able to keep it. At a, at a pretty level area, but I know there's more nuances to it than that. And uh, we'll see. But the key is, again, adjusting. You know, I, I tend, I, I don't always avoid it, but I tend to avoid the early pick fives for that exact reason, because I hate to be investing a few hundred dollars into that unknown abyss, especially early in the meet before you're able to really figure out the track. Whereas you can watch four or five races and play a late pick five or a pick six, 
when you've at least gotten some indication on how things are playing. I think that's good advice. That's really sound advice, uh, Pete. And the one problem I have with having racehorses that I own in New York is that you'll get in a week's time, you might get seven different tracks. Um, with every degree of moisture, uh, dryness. Why do they call Belmont? Because when Belmont is, when Belmont is dry, it's like a huge sandlot. And those are the hardest races to analyze after, you know, because you're looking at a track and people say, the track superintendent told me the track was going to be slow. Yes, speed will do well. People can't wrap their heads around the track being slow and speed winning. Why? Because they think if the track is slow, the closers will, will, will win. Well, that's not true. Because if the track is slow, nobody handles it. It's deep. It's like a sand. You ever try to race somebody on a deep sand at the beach? You can't make up any ground on them because you're struggling with your footing. And that's why speed does well. It's quick enough early to be able to get a lead, and then they go all on a merry-go-round. So when I see a merry-go-round track, I immediately think it's a loose track. It's a deeper, looser track that horses can't get a hold of, and the speed is just going to be able to outfoot everybody. And that confuses people and i've had you know i could say discussions and it sometimes had arguments you know because they don't understand that then you get a track that's sound farm now all of a sudden you go 21 and 3 44 and 2 you're gonna you're you're gonna get tired because you're running you're actually running and you have no advantage and here comes the horses on the outside come and get you we see that in Kentucky a lot. When it's firmer, outside. When it's looser, inside. Delmar is the same way. So uh, Belmont is known to be big sandy for that particular reason. Every track has their tendencies. And if you learn every track's tendency by watching, making notes, uh, and understanding uh, the, way, the way dirt reacts to moisture, um, and all you have to do if you want to learn is go down to the beach and look at how water affects the sand uh, where the waves wash ashore. So it's just some thoughts that I have. But I like your advice about waiting until the latter part of the races. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, unless, you know, there's a few days went by, you have a good feeling of how the track's playing. But I have plenty of days where I'll cap an early five tracks playing one way. I capped it as, as being fair or the other way. And you know, you're, you're just, you're wasting money. And at the end of the day, even if you're buying small tickets, that money's better used elsewhere. You know, as a, if you want to be a winning player, you need to know where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are and eliminate the unknowns. Uh, you know, as part of that, I very, very rarely once in a while, I very rarely play sloppy tracks. I feel that either with the off the turf races or the scratches, the field sizes get smaller, the value goes away or horses win that I, I don't figure, even though I do study pedigrees to a pretty substantial level, 
And so I normally just avoid slop days. And if, you know, two or three major circuits are sloppy, I'll look maybe to the Midwest or the West Coast uh, to replace it because I want the action. Um, but overall, I'm fairly disciplined. And, and a lot of my guys I bet with, my betting partners, always kind of roll their eyes if there's like a big pick sex carryover and it's a rain off the turf day at Saratoga Girl Golf Stream and they say, I'm going to pass. And they look at me like I'm an alien. But I am uncomfortable in those scenarios and or I don't think the values is strong. And so I try to stay away from it, you know, as part of the long-term strategy. That's one, one the beauty about this game is understanding what you are comfortable with. And a lot of players do not understand what they're comfortable, comfortable with. I think they're on in an automated situation that if it's running, they got to bet on it. So, but uh, Pete, tell us a little bit about your um, playing uh, shot in and Hong Kong. Tell us a little bit about that for those that are interested. Shotin, Happy Valley. Shotin, uh, if you're on the East Coast, Shotin runs when starts about 1 a.m. on Saturday nights, and Happy Valley usually around 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. So you have to adjust a bit. Um, there, it's a challenge. I could tell you, I, I I had some great days, and I have had days where I, I lose every race. Um, very inconsistent there. Although I put the time in, I learned a lot from Tommy Massis, but. Um, I don't know if it's th- that every race has 14 horses or there's no drugs at all there that make the cards more complicated. You'll see a horse run their eyeballs out, have proper rest, come back in a proper place and not run at all. Um, and I, I, I haven't quite figured it out. And there's also an element of gamesmanship where the trainers will uh, – almost trained to keep in a certain class level where they know their horses are competitive. Cause if a horse in Hong Kong is running very well, they are automatically forced into a higher class level and they may not be competitive in that higher class level. And, and then they're not earning checks for their owners. So there's a lot of nuances to it, but I can tell you the pool sizes are enormous. Um, there's a lot of interesting consolation bets and what i mean by that is the pick six for example it's a dollar 30 base bet in america and if you don't hit six of six it doesn't pay on winning five of six it pays as if it's a place pick six so you can run second in six consecutive races and you'll cash that consolation so they try to keep money in better's hands to keep churning it um, and it's the same thing with the pick threes there's a late pick three bet available in america and you get paid uh, – if you're alive in leg three but you run second, you get a consolation pick three for running second in the final race. Um, but if you haven't looked there, check it out. The Hong Kong Jockey Club website, everything's free. PPs are free. You can look at workouts. You can look at veterinary records. It's very transparent. Um, but I also like to use the PPs. I think the company's called Sky that creates them. as PPs that DRF offers for free. I've gotten more used to those. Um, but all, either way, they're, they're, both sets are free. It's, it's a great meet to check out um, and give it, a, give it a whirl. But start – I'd recommend anyone start with a small bankroll. It, it, it's a tough circuit, but you'll find some spots. You'll make some money. Tommy throws some, some picks sometimes up on Twitter, and then last year I think he threw one up that paid $60. Uh, so look, follow him. 
he's sharper than I am. But at the same time, I'm learning. I played a little bit on opening night on Saturday. And I was beat a photo for a couple thousand dollar try in race one. Got frustrated, came back, hit another race. And then I felt like I was seeing the ball well there. And I stayed up late to play it. And then I, my pick three ticket was disastrous at the end. So you just never know. You, you can feel like a genius there one moment and feel like a complete novice the next. But I enjoy the challenge of it, and I'm going to continue to play there. And I'd like to actually visit those tracks one day. Why don't we have some fun? Um, over the next couple of weeks, send me a link to where they have all their workouts for a, a, a card for that day. And let's see if we can come up with something. Let's see if workouts work. At shot in. Let me explain or how they work. It's, it's interesting. So on the link, you can watch the gallops, but you also their their timed works are what they call barrier trials. So there's usually six, seven, eight horses um, that are in the trial, and you go to the link, you watch the 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 workout slash trial, but what you also can see is how the horses in that trial are rated. So you might have a first time starter three-year-old who maybe kind of runs mid pack in that trial, but then you look and see, you know, there were like, you know, group one horses that were in that workout as well. So, you know, maybe he's better than, than he looks. Um, but it, the transparency is amazing. If, if, you know, there, there's trip notes on there, if, they, if a horse is a favorite and underperforms, they need to go in front of the stewards and explain why. And then, like, oh, I wouldn't say like a word-for-word transcript, but there'll be an overview description of what the jockey's response was. It's, it's really detailed. You, if you geek out on it, you'll find yourself on a Hong Kong Jockey Club website for hours and hours and hours, and you can put endless amount of time into a card. On the flip side, you know, Tommy's so familiar with the horses and the connections out there. He can cap a card in 20 minutes. Um, but it, it's it's fun. And it's it's a good model for other racing ju- jurisdictions to look at, especially the vet records. You see a horse hasn't run in six months. You go on there, you know every reason why. Exactly. It's posted. It's free. It's available to you. And, uh, you know, you can use those tools as a handicapper to try to hit some bets. The biggest problem here in America is getting everybody to agree. Pete yep. Renato, what's next for you? Where are you heading to? What are you going to play this uh, next couple of weeks? And uh, I look forward to seeing you in uh, California for the Breeders' Cup. I'll be there. My philosophy in general is I like consistency. And so, we're, you know, although the summer meets are fun and could be lucrative, I prefer to focus over the course of the year on meets that last a long time. And so for me right now, the focus is going to be probably 90% Woodbine because I know I can now watch these races for months on end and I've got PPs for the horses running there for the last few months. So I'll, I'll, do, I'll play a lot of Woodbine um, until the end of the year when you get the Santa Anita and Gulf Stream meets started. So if I see anything interesting at Woodbine, I'll definitely share it. But that's where my focus will be. All right. Well, Pete Renato, uh, enjoyed the time with you. And uh, any last words? And uh, we're out of here. Bruno, always a pleasure speaking to you, learning from you, sharing with you. The only thing I could tell fellow players is be patient, pick your spots, don't go on tilt, and you can make money in this game if you're willing to put the work in. Ah!
Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com.